0: Okay, we, If you can't hear me or any of the participants, please let us know, okay? My name is Pamela Pierce. I'm on the staff of Penn American Center, and I'm very, very happy to um, greet you and to welcome you on behalf of Penn American Center and to say that um, every year when we do an, we do an event annually with um, writer, PEN Writers in Exile USA, and we're very, very pleased always to co-sponsor with that group, which is... Very close to us before the program is begun um by writers in exile i would like to ask your, for your help with something i have uh flyers this color flyer which i will have at the reception for you to take afterward um, and this is how i need your help pen has a fund for writers and editors with aids we have done a benefit and a big mail campaign we have money which we want to give away we we know that it's needed. We want to get it into the hands of the people that need it, and we find we're finding that um, we need help from people like you. If you know of a writer or an editor who may have AIDS or who may know someone, please let them know about this. Please take a flyer. If you have friends in other parts of the country, it's not just for New York. Any place in the country where there are groups of writers, I ask you at the reception to take one and maybe mail it off to someone in another part of the country. Thank you very, very much, and I hope you have a wonderful evening. And we have a reception afterward. Don't forget, outside we have drinks and more talk and snacks and everything. Okay? Thank you.
1: Okay, Irina. Good evening. I have a great pleasure to welcome you to this evening's tribute to Ukrainian literature. Tonight's program is a celebration of the new Ukrainian Center of International Pen in Kyiv, Ukraine. The formation of the Ukrainian Pen Center is a highly significant event. Ukrainian writers have been persecuted in their own land for generations a tragedy which has been compounded by the general lack of knowledge of this repression. Today, recognition of Ukrainians' distinct linguistic and literary heritage is one step closer to realization. The new Ukrainian center was granted membership at the 54th, Congress of International Pen held in Toronto and Montreal in September of 1989. It was truly a moving moment of very moving for me and a historic one for all Ukrainians. When the distinguished poet Mykola Vinhranovsky addressed the assembly of delegates and requested admission of an independent Ukrainian center into the fold of international pen. Upon his return to Kiev, Mr. Vinhranovsky was chosen president of Ukrainian pen, which has at present 70 members, including 20 writers from the West. I'm very happy to announce that I am among those 20. The writers whose works will be read this evening. Here all are born in Ukraine, with the exception of Vasil Simonenko and Vasil Stus. Our featured writers all live in exile in the United States. Let us proceed with this evening's program. Marta Shamenko will now continue with opening remarks. Thank you.
2: We have lost the right to belong to ourselves. Not to mention the right to have our own books, to keep notebooks, notes. This cannot continue much longer. Such pressure is possible only before ruin. I do not know when their ruin will come, but I personally feel like a dead man. This excerpt from the diary of Vasil Stus reveals the tragic frustration of most Ukrainian writers in Ukraine. For many generations, Ukraine's right to free development of cultural, artistic, and literary expression has been consistently violated. Owing to its rich and varied natural resources and large land mass, Ukraine has suffered invasion, annexation, and occupation by Tsarist Russia, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Poland, Nazi Germany, and Soviet Russia. Not surprisingly, these occupiers who denied Ukraine's right to self-determination did not nurture manifestations of literary creativity by Ukrainians. On the contrary, They suppressed, censored, prohibited, and punished. Just a little more than 100 years ago, in 1876, the Tsarist government issued the EMS decree, which banned the Ukrainian language. Use of Ukrainian in literature, in schools, in commerce, was illegal. The Tsar proclaimed, meaning the Ukrainian language does not exist, it never did, and never will. Books written in Ukrainian but published abroad were prohibited from entering Ukraine. Even musical composers were forced to use only Russian lyrics. The M's decree elicited differing responses by the Ukrainian literati to the new onerous reality. Some became silenced by the Tsar's prohibition of the Ukrainian language. Others joined the ranks of Russian writers as the only venue allowable for literary expression. Ukrainian literature seemed to be on a course of decline and eventual extinction. While retardation of its development did occur, total destruction of Ukrainian literature was not achieved. There were writers who refused to accept the language ban and had their work smuggled into western Ukraine which at the time was under Austro Hungarian rule. In a relatively less repressive environment, publication of Ukrainian works of literature proceeded, albeit slowly. With the conclusion of World War I, Ukrainians attained independent statehood. However, their freedom was short lived. Ukraine was invaded and divided between Soviet Russia and the revived Polish state. Persecution of Ukrainian intellectuals, at whose vanguard stood writers, became common aims of the occupying governments. Under the regime of Joseph Stalin, purges of Ukrainian writers and other intellectuals intensified to horrific proportions by the 1930s. Deemed dangerous purveyors of aspirations toward cultural and national freedom... Ukrainian men and women of letters were targeted for mass executions and deportations to Siberia. During the Second World War, under Nazi Germany's occupation of Ukraine, the brilliant young poetess Olena Teliha was executed in Kiev by the Nazis for her literary work. The distinguished poet Oleg Kandeba was tortured and murdered in the notorious Nazi concentration camp of Sachsenhausen. Teliha and Kandeba were among countless Ukrainian victims of fascism. Concerted efforts to halt independent literary expression and national self-assertion continued with the Soviet Inquisition processes of the mid-1960s and early 70s. Based on fabricated criminal charges, writers were arrested, imprisoned in so-called corrective hard labor camps, committed to psychiatric hospitals, and forced to live in exile in the far outposts of the Russian Empire. Nearly an entire generation of Ukrainian writers became a generation of political prisoners. Some became martyrs, such as the poet Vasil Stus, whose works will be read later this evening. Despite the enormous and welcome strides taken by the current Soviet government toward reform, the environment in which Ukrainian literature is forced to exist remains burdensome and limiting. Most large Ukrainian cities remain without Ukrainian language schools, a legacy of the regime's long-standing Russification policy. Infringement upon Ukraine's linguistic freedom fundamentally denies its distinct literary heritage and restricts its future potential. During the last few moments, I have spoken of a nation of 50 million whose history of literature is imbued with human tragedy. Thus, tragedy often became the content of many Ukrainian literary works. Beginning with Taras Shevchenko, the outstanding 19th-century poet and painter, Ukrainian writers have faced brutal persecution in their own captive land. Their works, nevertheless, remain an expression of the human spirit, a Promethean spirit which not only survives, but is continually reborn. The power of the Ukrainian pen embodies the universal desire for freedom of expression and for immortality. Bulo, ye, ibude. It is, it was, and it will be. Thank you. And now we will begin with readings of works of our featured writers. Background notes on each of our participants are attached to your programs. I am now pleased to introduce to you Lubov Kolensky.
3: <clears throat> Two houses stood across the street from each other, hers Gleamed like a white snow that no one had walked upon. His boasted reddish, vermilion hues, especially the entire roof. Each morning, the owners of one and the other house came out for a walk. Surprisingly, the years had not bent them to the ground, and they kept erect and held their heads high as if two swans that had left their flock and became lost among men sunk deeply in their thoughts, they almost did not notice each other, and when momentarily their glances touched, they immediately averted their eyes if seeking someone or something far off. But, but it is certain that the fateful stars must have intervened in this matter, for suddenly the lives of these two people changed completely. "'Something happened that was totally ordinary. "'After a rain, the sidewalks were wet and slippery, "'and she, ever the careful one, "'slipped and would have fallen if not for him. "'Forgive me,' she said, embarrassed and almost fearfully. "'This shows it's time I got a cane, "'and here I must bother total strangers. "'I am getting old,' she added, "'wiping the hem of her dress,' She had gotten wet in a puddle, and suddenly tears glistened in her eyes. "'What is this, you say? You absolutely don't need a cane yet. You have such a nice erect stance,' he said. "'And so do you,' she answered, her face blushing thickly. He was totally baffled, hearing her prize, and suddenly the words slipped from his lips.' And tears are not necessary, it is a shame you have such lovely blue eyes. Embarrassed by his unexpected words, he added quickly, Forgive me for my boldness in saying so, but for me in this moment, it feels somehow if we have been acquainted for a long time. And she, who normally avoided not only strangers, but people in general, smiled and hesitantly reached out her hand to him. That is all right. After all, we are neighbors. I'm Lydia Lysetska, and I'm Alexa Litter, he answered as we're delivering a military report, and then jokingly added, You still don't need a cane, but maybe in some way I could substitute for it. Will you permit me to walk you home? For a moment she was contemplative. But meeting his open, sincere look, her full, almost still childishly rounded lips, smiled once more. Well, it's very slippery today, and we are neighbors, and it is on our way. He thought to himself, how nice that she has such full, sweet lips. I have always been turned cold by women with thin lips. I think they are creatures with stubborn and mean natures. That is how their acquaintance began. From then on, they took daily walks together. After greeting each other, they always began each conversation with the same words. You know, while my husband still lived and I, that was when my wife was with me. She was a beautiful woman. Apart from this, they words ran swiftly with returning steps Unchanging sentences caught up with each other about their broken happiness and their present loneliness. Yet, actually, there is no complaint. They are both totally comfortable with it because they can live again and again in painful but their own personal separate pasts. Conversing like this, they secretly wiped unbidden tears, hardly to the sorrow as with a precious creature without which each has not the slightest reason for a living. And afterwards, afterwards they comforted one another, silencing pain with gentle words until a smile creased his face, until the deep blue of her eyes brightened with radiance. And so, apparently, it would seem that nothing changed, only ever more often they consoled and cheered each other when grief overtook them. At first, this came out hesitantly, for neither of them wished to break in someone's life or violent someone's, until now, so blessed, diamond-like solitude. Yet, after a while, they hardly know when, words of completely personal tenderness began to weave into their conversation. They were quite unaware when, at the very bottom of their souls, a timid toad began to lift its head and ripen, like a fragile sprout in awe of its very existence that was becoming more and more difficult for them to get along without their walks together. And when they were together, how interesting it was. This upset them, and they did not admit it even to themselves. How could this be? They could have sworn that it would have never come to this more so now, in their advanced years. Was it not shameful? They were embarrassed by these thoughts, yet were afraid to look truth in the eyes. Up to now, nestled in memories, they lived only with their past. She was her husband, he was his wife. But it's always fate. The artists of all men's lives decide the outcome for them by itself. One day but it seemed that everything in the world flowed unchanging in its orderly fashion. First came daybreak, and then the sun appeared, and the morning echoed with lively steps on the streets. She did not come out of her house. He waited. He waited a long time, and then was so anxious that he dared to ring her doorbell. Suddenly, the door opened, and she came out. But she was not always, her face was pale, and her eyes looked tired. Despite his concern, he did not ask about anything, and it was unnecessary, for she herself said, forgive me for making you wait, but I had a bad night, as if pain tormented my heart. I could not fall asleep. I was afraid to be alone, and she smiled briefly. Now, now, everything is all right. Maybe you should see a doctor. Maybe, she replied and was silent, a tired furrow etched between her brows. I see that even now you don't feel so good. He took her hand. This way it will be easier. Momentarily a protest welled up in her soul, but was silenced. She agreed. From then on, they always walked arm in arm. No more words were spoken, neither about any kind of feelings nor about relationships. Except for one thing they no longer addressed themselves with the formal you, but changed to the more intimate form of you. And somehow it came to be they spent more and more time together. They walked along the shores of the lake feeding wild geese. They sat on a bench taking pleasure in the crowns of the trees. They went to the library leafing through books or simply wandering along the lane of the park, listening to the rustling of the leaves underfoot, to the murmur of the branchy poplar trees that hid them beneath a magical canopy as in a huge green bower. And they talked and talked. The words braided tightly, weaved together, and sometimes they were both embarrassed, walling themselves with silence, and the fearful words were hushed. Then, one night, when the first star appeared in the great heavenly sapphire ring, and they, as usual, stopped in front of her house to say goodbye, he, emotional on edge, as in a young suitor, said aloud in the stillness the words, that made them both shudder. One of must start. I guess that lot falls to me. For a moment he was silent. And then he began speaking rapidly. To continue like this, at least for me, is r- impossible. Each day we say goodbye and each day you go away from me. I admit they wait impatiently until I see you again. I know. It's somehow strange. It's disturbing. We are not young. After now, my wife has always been first with me. He took a step closer to her and stretched his hand. And she will be, she whispered quietly in answer. And later she said, I don't know myself. Maybe it's really too late for us. This is our autumn. Yet, however, what's the harm in it when we can open our hearts to each other, talk openly, be together, joke. Is it after all ever too late for friendship, for love? In answer, he involuntarily touched his silver hair and said, one thing only. What if the time we have left is not long and one of us departs? Then it will be sorrow again. To tell the truth, I cannot grieve again. I am already exhausted. As I am, I wouldn't worry about this too much, my darling. The time of our last journey is set for each of us only by God. And there is no reason to think about it. It is strange, he said. Yet for the first time since my wife left me, I want to live again. He looked at her in his whole face, took on radiance, then transferred to her, enveloped her whole being, as in purely pastel. And then she lifted her face up to him, a nestled and nestled in the warmth that came from him. And from under her eyelid, as from under a thick wreath of grass in the morning, a tear of joy twinkled. <clears throat> he hesitated no longer. Embracing her tightly around the shoulders, he opened the door to his house before her, Come, my dearest, let's go in. Together if it will be easier. It will be even nice. In answer her face was radiant, so feminine and soft, and they went in. She matched his footsteps as if they both had been since long ago one volinists one life. And wondrous thing happened. Among the autumn smells of leaves. There suddenly wafted the dusky fragrance of spring cherry blossoms. I saw them once again. It was in picture gallery. On stretched canvas, they appear as a pair of proud swans, stepping lightly on a path that eddies with the burgundy streams of autumn. True, they were both silver-haired, but as there are people resurrected in youth, and their hands are intertwined like the branches of grapevine that merge into one. And despite the frost nearby, which outlines the short path before them, both pairs of blue eyes are calm. Without fear, they look towards the far distance.
2: Our next featured writer is a former political prisoner who arrived in the West in 1987. He will read a few verses in Ukrainian, followed by a reading in English by Larissa Lorette. I am very privileged to introduce to you now Mykola Rudenko.
4: Я прочитаю коротенького вірша, написаного в Донецькій тюрмі відразу ж після арешту. Не мудрую лукаво, не сню наяву, не піклуюсь про славу, живу, прийдуть злигодні знову капканом для дум Не віддам тебе слово на глум Куди доля захоче хай стежка веде але знай, що не збочу ніде
5: I will read an excerpt from the poem, The Cross, by Mikola Rudenko. Uh, it was written between January 29th and February 10th, 1976, in a psychoneurological hospital. In the course of the poem, the protagonist, named Myron, a commissar and an old Bolshevik, undergoes a metamorphosis, an evolution from Marxism to Christianity. Myron arrives at his native village, ravaged by the great famine of 1933, the infamous Stalin-induced genocide of Ukrainian people. He finds his mother's house empty and overgrown with weeds. Distraught over his mother's death, Myron fashions a wooden cross and begins a hopeless search for his mother's grave. Wherever he goes... He keeps calling his mother, and he hears her voice beneath the ground. All night he roamed, and ere the day glow, as still induced the grasslands, dreamt, atop an ancient Scythian barrow, Myron collapsed with anguish spent. Prostrate, he cursed. Lips weakly moving, all leaders living, dead, unborn, dropped flat before a carven woman, his oaken cross the ground adorned. Oh, where to search, to seek you, Mama, through what untold travails and tears? And in response, the barrow mother called out, cried out to him, I'm here. I'm everywhere where people perish. Their pain am I, their dying groans. He kissed her stony breast and creviced. He grasped her fingertips of stone as if that stone held healing powers that soared to earth from alien skies. And his dead mother was the all world that raged in trembling stars on high. Then all at once... Beyond the skyline, a silvered string transpired the air. Some living hand had plucked a lyre, spreading soft tremblings everywhere. Myron had never heard such playing in all his life. Myron rose up and glanced before him. Oh wonder! Down the dew flamed steps, with lyre in hand, there strode toward him. "'Not someone else, but Christ himself, "'the one to whom his mother daily prayed. "'It seemed that Myron should have dropped suppliant down on his knees, but no, he stood, head high. "'No qualms or fears perturbed his soul undying, "'but reckless rage at what he'd seen transpire. "'It wasn't quite the time, not quite the moment, "'to fret about his claims to heaven's doors.' Myron, though you be God and I a helpless human, still for the truth I spilled my blood in war. And what transpires? Not truth, but hellish tortures, unending tortures with no end in store. People throughout raise their worn hands toward you, and you in turn roll up your eyes at God. Tell me, what certitude, what grace or freedom have you bequeathed or even given Ukraine? We search for good throughout like hay for needles, yet all we glean is grief for all our pains. Christ, I proffer that which men keep spurning lamely. I breathed life animation into lifeless stone so it could rise as human flesh and bravely reach for the star worlds where the cosmos glows. Without the word, it's just a lump of matter, jellied rigidity, not living life. Myron, words, empty words, like scales of chaff they scatter, a world without cohesion, without plight. You preach to us the timeless joys of heaven, and we believe you on your golden throne. Meanwhile, the mother skins and rends her children, and powerless our hearts turn back to stone. Christ, speak, explicate. I too am God's creation, being the Son. Yet I've unveiled my sire. Myron, you're loath perhaps to hear these harsh delations forced forth with malice from these lips of mine. Christ, oh no. The man of malice mouths hosannas. His liege to praise extols the five-year plan and meanwhile to secure his next advancement murders his mother with his own two hands. If you must know Therein, sublimely buried, lies man's perdition. There's what Satan is, man's ancient shield against the Holy Spirit. This lust for power, pride subverting bliss. And all you've seen transpire, it's his creation. Today his force has silenced good on earth. Myron, your God! Yet where's your sacred obligation to all just souls, to all good deeds of worth? Death reigns today within Ukraine's green borders. How have her sons displeased or angered you? Christ, the actions of your nation are immortal, for it is I. Myron, explain, I beg of you. Christ, the nation, it is God. Its people, cells, comprising a higher countenance of life, which you weren't meant to see. A soul that's guileless, childlike, as it's its brain, which with its views and hues forces new forms upon the world's infinity, so it can breathe it. Such a nation, brave, will never place another in captivity, won't murder fathers, orphans won't enslave, think back. When have Ukrainians ever prisoned their neighbor nations? On which neighbor's grounds have they wreaked havoc? Faith in friendship's vision, they've always borne upon their prescient brows. Pick up your cross. I'm crucified upon it, your noble nation's glorious fate to be, and he who spurns us, he, accursed, dishonored, shall chaos reap for all eternity. Pick up your cross, and though its weight impales you with wicked agony, you bear it, breath by breath. Within its pit, rage, starving children's wailings and women's ululations facing death, and faith sustains it. Faith. The word's first vantage, man's flag of glory, and God's battle creed. And in it rings the true Ukrainian language, whose every comma plants a sacred seed. Myron, but I'm a communist, Christ. Is it still from you hidden that only God is the one communist? And men mere children, blind, unfeeling children, who hail new words, not for the truths within, but solely for their fleeting sounds external. For Satan steals from men such bootless words, and diabolically he twists and turns them so deftly that all truths are made absurd. Pick up your cross and bear it as I, Myron, bear this old liar the Dnieper Cossack's gift. And suddenly, a marvel happened. No more the Christ in triumph, but a gray minstrel sitting blind and stiff. And the old minstrel's silver-blossomed features merged into sunlight on the heaven's girth. Master of sagas and the word's first teacher, he sat revealed as Lord of Lords on earth.
2: The next featured writer of our program is Irena Dypko. Please listen as she reads a few verses in Ukrainian. Uh, Afterwards, I will read a few short selections in English. Irena Dypko.
1: Час в житті проходить так швидко, просто зашвидко він проміна. Тому кожну часу крихітку ділом вплітаємо у вінок життя. Бо нам не можна забувати, ми в обіймах ласкавої долі тих, що судилось їм зустрічати в Сибірі прокляття. Неволі. Тож працюємо кожну хвилину Для рідного народу добра Не забуваймо батьківщину Бо ж в неволі ще й досі вона Хай чесним ділом процвітають В життя вінку наші години Хай думи в ділах оживають У ділах
2: the following selection by Irena Dipko is dedicated to Ivan Zuba a Ukrainian writer who during the 1960s was persecuted by the Soviet regime for his landmark book, Internationalism or Russification. Tuba was forced to recant his views. His capitulation was disparaged by many Ukrainians. The poem that I will now read was written when news of his disavowal reached the West. It begins with a quotation of Ivan Drach, the distinguished Ukrainian contemporary writer. That old house that I so cherished, mad misery and hundred winds are pursuing to demolish. Hundred winds are tossing leaves from the tall and mighty oak, They keep bending his proud head, breaking hands and tearing cloak. His roots, deep in ancient earth, are holding, helping not to fall, withstanding all the miseries, and not to bend but stay straight, tall. But winds were blowing, shouting, Siberian winds, until was done only was Mother Earth lamenting, you fall, my son, my son, my son. He did not hear Earth Mother's cry. Siberian winds, oh triumphing were they. The once proud and mighty oak, broken and frozen, just lay but I believe winds did not touch your roots deep, deep in mother's lap. Your roots will feed new shoots and they will grow ever mighty with every step. Oh no, time does not go by, time has no beginning nor end, days and months under the sky just repeat themselves, my friend. Earth and time in endless rotation are repeating all the happiness and happenings in life. In that time just passengers are nations, and somewhere within your path and mine lie. That path is short and only one, but for each of us is such a place where we meet what was yesterday done. Then we stop and think and stand amazed because it molds the meaning of life on the crossroads of all tomorrows in repetition of goals and what is strived in achievements of happiness and sorrows. That is why we should remember to leave on paths of life such an aim that our grandchildren will stop and surrender. Here walked my ancestors a proud proclaim. There are eyes which are large and eyes which are small, those which take flight and those which crawl, eyes that are happy and those that despair, eyes that are kind and those that don't care, shallow, naive, or with wisdom eyes, lamenting, invoking, or filled with sighs thunder and lightning I have seen in eyes. Hate and jealousy and piercing sharp knives. Eyes can curse with pain and grief's might. Eyes of fearlessness or of cowardly fright. Eyes can speak the truth or hideous lies or I love you can softly whisper eyes. Within eyes there can be greed, relentless for more. Within eyes can dwell an angel. Within eyes can exist a whore. Within eyes is beauty beyond imagination, where can be found greatness of God's creation. Eyes can speak, yet not need words to pray. Eyes which seek, and those which look away. Eyes are the window into the soul. I shall look in your eyes, for I wish to know. Is there such a place where memories never fade? Are there some dreams out of reality made? Is there such a land where sunsets are not known? Does someone's heart say, love forever my own? Are there some lips that never, never said lies? Is a soul somewhere enjoying the symphony of the sky? Have you seen a person who has never shed tears? If so, my friend, you know where bliss forever lives. I believe our next featured writer is Dr. Ostap Tarnavsky, who will be reading a few verses in Ukrainian, followed by a reading in English by Larissa Lorette. Ostap Tarnavsky.
4: I have been asked to read couple of lines in Ukrainian and my choice is my translation of a short poet poem uh, by American poet Robert Frost stopping by woods on a snowy evening with last lines well known I guess but I have promises to keep and miles to go before i sleep now my translation ja znaju czyj celis <laughs> tadim jehofse li i wish do może win co w śnieżno noc ja ywujeciem ni mi King, bo tut ni zaist ani dym, wyżli, szcz usniach premok i stałzszcz w stroju lodowwim. Kiń u łową szarpnął za sznrok, w presaniach zadzwonył dzwinok, jakby zapytował: zomu. Пичов за вітром крок у крок І манить ліс огибну Яш мою путь призначену І далеко йти ще ним засну Далеко йти ще ним засну Thank you
5: reading, first appeared in print in the International Pen Bulletin. It is called Exit to Doom. In the building, there is a stairway, a vital artery which leads in a single direction, deep into a dark basement, as mysterious as though it were the birthplace of the world. You light it up with a half-burnt-out candle, scattering the darkness that shrouds your mind like a cobweb, and at the end, you discover a heavy, round iron lid with a small forged wheel on hinged, hinged hooks. Very carefully, you move this wheel aside, first having grasped it firmly in the palm of your hand, and with knees bent and much effort, you push the lid to the floor and expose the black opening to a canal. There you throw a revolver and a cartridge belt, like some worthless waste material, and again push back the lid and cover the entrance to this stairway artery from the underground of the town and the world. In the other direction, the stairway leads to the attic, the place where a breeze is apt to wander in for some repose, as it hides behind freshly laundered sheets and where birds skip along tin shingles laid out in the long street of the roofs. From there, through the window openings, small for human eyes, but spacious for the wind which billows the white laundry, you can see distant lands as far as Knyajahora and the woods beyond it. And from that side, there is a lush panorama of the town amid green hills. You sit sideways in the attic, at the small window, relinquishing the entire opening to the wind, which continually rumples your hair. You sit sideways as though taking aim with one eye at what is beyond the window. And you watch. See how the war moves along Jokyuska Street. Cumbersome tanks built of 50 tons of iron bump heavily along the cobbled road. You can also see the police cars flying past in haste, like vultures on the wing, drawn by the smell of carrion. The view from the attic is all-encompassing, but from the basement, you can see nothing. Reminiscent of two extremities, a flash of light at birth and darkness at the end, or is it perhaps the reverse? Listen to how the heart beats, how thought darts like a bird between the walls of the skull. You, the man in the dark basement, you know more, you see more, you watch with one eye glued to a crack in the wooden door at your cellar hiding place, this dark cell which has become your refuge from the wide open spaces where death lies in wait. There is always life in the building. Someone is always using the staircase, be it the quiet hour of a lazy sunny noon or the violent upheaval of senseless wartime confusion. Listen to the melody the footsteps stamp out. It is just the ordinary stamp of feet, but how many thoughts and expectations they carry, how many meetings and glances, and how much happiness and things unspoken. What variety there is in those footsteps, and how important they are, like the beats of the heart. Suddenly, the entrance gate slams noisily, and the man in the basement listens attentively. Take it up there. You've talked to him? I did not. What for? This is the best place, near the marketplace. Besides, by nightfall, there won't be a single pack left, and when he returns from work, he'll find out about everything when it's too late to protest. (laughs) And then we'll celebrate. Shall we carry the cases to his place? Of course. We'll tell the father that this is his uh, supplement. At how much? Try to get nine, but if that's too hard, then eight and a half for each pack. But if the buyer takes the lot, then charge eight. But only for cash down, You want to smoke? No, I don't smoke. You shouldn't use your own stock, especially in wartime. It's like taking to the sword and perishing by it. It's safe here, quiet, like a monastery. Hmm, actually this is a monastery. Only the sisters were turned out, over there, to the yard near the stables. I better go, no use wasting time. Give me ten packs for the time being. The man in the basement listens and feels a great craving for a smoke. Yes, even half a cigarette would do. He then resolves to stoop to the lowest of infamies and implore his friend when he comes down to the basement to give him a few cigarettes. If he has as many as two cases, surely he ought to be able to let him have one small pack. No doubt he'll get some as a gift for services rendered. He can hear steps going high up on the stairway somewhere near the attic itself, and then it is quiet. The man in the basement knows that everything has been settled. One of the dealers is in the marketplace by now, walking gravely up and down amid the crowd, calling out in a low voice, pretending to be casual, cigarettes, cigarettes, smokes, in the same conspiratorial tone that the other hawkers use for vodka, alcohol, or sugar, saccharine, or leather soles. The other dealer is now having a polite conversation with a gentleman while he mentally calculates how much he would lose if the entire stock should go, not at the retail price of nine per pack, but at eight for everything. The man in the basement is also entangled in a complex situation which has somehow insinuated itself upon him and forced people to get involved in it. The way it customarily happens in life. You walk along the street, completely at peace, and suddenly someone insults someone else, an automobile hits someone, and now this accident drags you into a new situation. You are summoned as a witness. You get entangled in the whole situation, are taken up in it, and live it as though it were your own personal matter. The man in the basement now becomes interested in the cigarette affair, and he too, in spite of himself, begins calculating mentally the amount of profit there would be from the sale of two cases of cigarettes. Each case has 50 packs. At nine each, that would mean 900 for the two cases. My, almost a thousand! How easy for only a few hours, possibly even one hour, a whole thousand! Wartime brings thousands to some people, almost without theft or stealing. For others, a single moment may bring the loss of everything, literally everything, even life itself. Words of a conversation right over the basement on the first landing of the stairway fall sharply like blows. He had better get out of there at once. Silence. And then, tell me why, son. You know quite well, but no buts, father. You must think of yourself and your family. But you must have some heart. Heart? You talk about heart in days like these. You know what happens to people harboring Jews. You can't turn them out to death. True enough, but that's no business of ours. They dragged our people out of bed and nobody lifted a finger. Hmm. Everyone for himself? Exactly. War brings out the beast and the beast goes for self-preservation, me too. Why should I care for you when you don't do it for yourself and your own? Let it go until tomorrow. Tomorrow things will be clearer. No, not a moment. No one will know. No! I'll report it myself. Make up your mind, father. Half an hour to get rid of him. Strident footsteps clatter on the concrete steps and go upward. A hush fell upon the place where these heavy words fell. They permeated the entire stairway artery, and their weight pressed the basement down even deeper. The man in the basement felt a lack of air for breathing and a great loneliness. The same loneliness you feel standing in a roaring, buzzing throng which jostles you and then looks at you with curious eyes and kindly unconcern, and perhaps unconsciously throws you a trite, apologetic phrase in your direction while all the while you stand and feel you are at the brink of an abyss. And you want to yell, help. You look for someone's helping hand, but there is none. You are completely alone, and that is the way it must be. The man in the basement strains as he bends to reach the forged iron handle to raise the heavy lid and dig out a piece of black metal from the hiding place where someone else under different circumstances, through it like some useless waste material. Suddenly, it seems that he himself can put an end to his uncertainty, make himself a gift of that peace which is indicated at that other end of life's stairway. But there will be many opportunities to die. No need to make a special effort now, and yet, there is such a desire to live, even when the chance of living is so small. The man in the basement feels a sudden upsurge of determination, a determination so strong that it is capable of breaking down the door to let him emerge from the darkness. Let the worst happen, but he must get away from his dark, hopeless hole. Why doesn't he move? What's holding him back? Doesn't he have the guts to do it? The man in the basement wants to cry out, but then he hears the slow, heavy echo of an uneven gate. The key in the lock has already squeaked, and the door opened. Standing in front of one another were two figures, dark and silent, and a right hand in the obscurity looked for another right hand. The pressure of farms was strong and long. The man in the basement suddenly pulled away his own palm from his friend's clasp, hesitated, and then rapidly, almost at a run, jumped up the stairs to the upper floor and from there to the entrance gate and the street. At dusk, the street was peaceful, shaded on both sides by gray blocks of buildings like an embankment the black gates were shut and silent. Like a weary traveler exhausted by the road, night was slowly getting ready to rest on gray pavements. From the end of the street, like a sudden wind, there rose the sound of footsteps and the rustle of whispered conversation. And there appeared a column of human beings, men and women, all in gray rags, who though bowed and stooped, were still lively in their whispered conversation. On the shoulders of all of them was a white epaulette with a hexagonal star. This was a group of Jews returning to the ghetto from a day's work. These were the slaves marked for death in rows of four, each with its own militia man wielding the stick. The only thing that has rights in these days the supreme authority a justice, truth, and life itself. For the man in the basement, thought and individuality suddenly died. Like an animal which smells its herd, he quickened his pace and joined the column of new slaves, walking to their doom.
2: Vasil Simonenko's appearance in the literary arena of the early 1960s came at the time of Ukraine's cultural and national reawakening in the post-Stalin era. He is considered a key figure in the movement of the 1960s, a group of young Ukrainian writers, artists, and scholars who espoused freedom of expression. Vasyl Simonenko merged powerful political and social commentary with a highly aesthetic lyrical style of poetry. In championing free thought, Simonenko created a poetry rich with insight and pendant with truth, regarding not only Soviet reality but all of humankind's existence. His poem Paradoxica argues for it is not terrible to die. It is terrible to live when you are dead. Vasil Simonenko passionately felt that Ukraine, in his words, is but one entire wound together. Nevertheless, his prophetic vision foresaw the growing, unstoppable momentum of Ukraine's reawakening, despite the Soviet regime's efforts to destroy it. In his advice for tyrants, Simonenko contends, no matter how you twist it, it will always be the same. Someone should have told the torturers, methought, You can execute the brain where ideas were wrought. You cannot execute a thought. Vasil Simonenko died in 1963 at the hands of the Soviet secret police. He was 28 at the time. Non multa sed multum. Not great by quantity, but great by content. The first selection is entitled, I, a poem banned by the Soviet government. He looked at me as if I had no worth. I saw his eyes were empty when he finally withdrew. Why do you see yourself the center of the earth? There are many millions just like you. He was gruff and angry. That I could see. His wrathful face would twist and swell. And if he could, he'd have crucified me because I respected myself. But my pride did not want to kneel. Every minute stretched long before it was done. There are millions like me, but I feel that I will always be one. For everyone has his own style. Not everyone can be coerced. We isn't many standard eyes. It's many different worlds. We is the bosom of nations of billions. We is the clan that all persons comprise. And only he will get respect from millions who can respect a million eyes? Where are you now, O torturers of nations? Where is your majesty, your power? Where's it gone? You will no longer have the quiet, sacred places to lay unholy waste upon. My nation grows, expands, is acting, without your whips, without your scorn. It will outlive all those whose fortitude was lacking, all those whom evil hordes had borne. My nation is. My nation lives eternally, and no one will destroy my nation's life. It constantly grows young internally, its soul with tenderness and fury rife. You, bastard sons of torturous satanic, forget this knot, you harvest of the mud. My nation is. Its vibrance is titanic. My nation's veins still throb with Cossack blood. Dreamingly they float from out the misty foggage, pinkish swans who paint the night with waxen starrage. So peers the fable through the window pane with graying eyes and motherly good grace, which right behind it lies. Don't return, vexation, run, forever run. I won't let you rock the cradle of my son. Swim towards the cradle, O oh swans, like some wishes, and let the quiet stars rest neath his lashes. The roosters threaten night-time with their calls. The swans still danced upon the sullen walls. With their wings in down, they issue murmurations, tickling mirages with their gold constellations. You'll grow up, my son, and start upon your way. Many dormant dangers will mature that day. In the transport of dusk, the forest nymphs with darkened brow will greed to have your subtlety, your love, some way, somehow. They will call for you in gardens of green, those betrothed to the dark hairs of wondrous mien. You can surely choose your friends and pick a spouse, my son. But of choices for a motherland, there is only one. You can pick a friend and a blood brother, too, but your mother is already chosen for you. Always there with you, wherever you go, your mother's eyes, the home you used to know. And if foreign fields be the resting place for you, Ukraine's willows and poplars will come without ado. They will stand over you, and rustling their leaves, their baleful farewell will touch your very eaves. For you can choose anything at all my son, but of motherlands for you, there is only one. We think of you through the quiet nights of summer in freezing morns and evenings too, and holy days and days of labor, great grandsons We think of you. We think of you. And that is why our hands don't languish by our plows and carts. We don't submit to pain. Instead, we stand. And joy, not toil, re-echoes in our hearts. No. It's not sadness that outflows from our faces, it's creativity that we outpour this way. And creativity with hope and danger blazes, quite like a restless night in May. No, we don't dream of quiet, slumbering places. We are not drawn by the serenity of light. The future shines in our faces. Eternity and creativity unite. And this is why, with graveness and serenity, we meet whene'er we work, whene'er we vie, the eagle evil accusations so vile in their insanity, the rivers of demented lies we think of you through the quiet nights of summer, in freezing morns and evenings too, and holy days and days of labor. Oh dear descendants, we're defending you. That is all. They have buried a very old man. They interred him forever in a sanctum of soil. No longer he'll rise with the dawn in his eyes, climb the mountain with sickle to toil. No longer with strickle the silence he'll wake, watch the sky as the stars disappear. And only the rye field will cry for his sake, through the hundreds and thousands of years. That is all. They have buried a very good man, put him back in the womb of the soil. But I doubt and I ask it, how in his casket did they fit all his toils, his hopes, and his fears? can it be? He won't care if the sun shines or not, if the night be forgot. And pain finds my soul, and it snakes into there, and it hurts me a lot. I am ready to believe in some heavenly place, for I don't want the holy, the nameless, and great, the earth children shameless, the children of toil, to enter the soil and enter not leaving a trace. May the mad make a row or the planet of spring. May the blades of grass grow through the old rotten things. I do not believe that the dead man will rise, but believe that no, he won't fully die, that his thoughts so unwise will be pondered by grandson's surmise and for ages his wrath. All the pain and the joy and the sorrow he had and all which in death to his clan he was giving shall survive and shall live with the living. Vasil Stus wrote much of his literary work in inhumane conditions of Soviet prisons and camps. He lived under the constant threat of confiscation and destruction of his writings. He was often harshly punished by prison authorities for his relentless pursuit of literary expression while existing in senseless forced bondage. We can only imagine that as Vasil Stuss wrote these verses, he hoped that these scraps of paper, filled with the tiniest letters, in order to use every millimeter of the page, would somehow escape the prison walls, escape and come into the hands of those who value free thought and its expression in choice words. His distinctive, complex poetism spans elegiac gentleness, passionate dynamism, lyrical, memory-filled musings, and painful realism. His poems are a passage into the internal world, into the diary of the spirit, and therein lies their universality. It has been estimated that between 600 to 800 poems were destroyed by the KGB. However, the body of Stuss's work that did survive was published in the West. It caught the attention of the Nobel Committee, which nominated Vasil Stuss for the prize in literature. Shortly after his nomination, the poet, gravely ill and denied of adequate medical attention, subsequently died in prison in September of 1985. He was 47 years old. If he had served his full term of sentencing, Vasil Stus would have spent a total of 22 years of imprisonment and forced exile. What love! A whole eternity has passed since I loved and dreamt from day to day that all would merge and memory would pass, parting to the last memorized comma and contraction. Yet once again, I go into that cell among the melancholy willow's boughs. I shall await the unknown, haphazard feelings that turn virtue into shame. There will be parting enough for two, and there will be as well a silent joy, a joy to feel with my whole heart the growing debt owed to a past with a white headboard, where a pair of ebony braids still flows, and a pair of long arms drunk upon the dark, and a pair of greedy lips suddenly send us headlong down the slope of idiotic virtue. Beneath the sorrow, beneath the wing of a saintly sinner who gifted us with the rooms, Where sleep is no disgrace, and love no shame. Where everything is there for give and take. And in the middle of the night, one can exceed the bounds of self. To friend, to wife, to mother, your generous and melancholy lover leads you by the hand. Summon the lion within you and fathom the endless walls within the endless rage when ice-clad cries roar from corner to corner. Summon the lion within you and bellow. Let the black clawing roar surround this universal enclosure, leading your mind into a fairy glade where memories prickle like awns, where the years are burnt stubble, and where your woes, insatiable hyenas, sharpen their fangs and claws for you. Summon the lion within you and rage among the bolts, bars, and locks. The world is flowering with stubble and barbed wire. The sun seemed never to have shone here till suddenly came a spray, lilacs gleamed in bloom, bronze-bodied pines gushed at the crowns sipping in the day, and the shrieks ran into the humid valley where frogs sat dreaming. Time stands still here. The oak tests its age against eternity. Hornbeams writhe in contortion, mountain ashes dive into the depths, observing with a swallow's eye the timeless world and their own timeless age. Live here a while and you will think Ukraine is still a home for nightingales and a wood nymph may flit through the glade, her hands extended to a squirrel, and a flute may sing across the foothills, and the wood nymph's human lover will appear. Leave yourself at the village gate and go, open and resonant like an untilled field, observe, and listen, take in the fragrance, touch every blade of grass with your fearful hand. Here you will ferment like a tub of hops, ferment on songs, on bees that gather in the sun's glow, that by the day consumed still live upon that day, subject to the ancient laws, as if to gifts, living upon the loss. Come here and learn to live a human life. The trees teach goodness as a gift to the self. To speak when there is need. To be silent when silence is the rule. And to smile so that, smiling, you can meet your death. Weep, sky, weep and weep. Wash the unabated sea of thin-voiced waters and humidify the heart. It seems it was just now, just yesterday, that a deathly shiver buried you alive. Weep, sky, weep and weep. The past cannot be returned. Today has been reduced to naught. The future will not come. Something weighs on the mind that can never be torn from the heart. This prison is a prison for prisons. Weep, sky, weep and weep. Spill over your horizons and let the stars fall from darkened skies. Is there in this world a trumpet that will sound a final blast to keep me from my resurrection? Flow, water, flow, and sweep me away from my weariness, for eternities of bondage have crushed me. High upland thunder girdle the earth, pitch winged cloud bless me, lightning send a message, hallowed be the world, the night is its companion. So, water, flow forth, and you, misfortune, rage. How good it is that I've no fear of dying, nor ask myself how ponderous my toil, nor bow to cunning magistrates decrying presentiments of unfamiliar soil, that I have lived and loved, yet never burdening my soul with hatred, curses, or regret. My people, it is to you I am returning. In death somehow I find my fate. I turn my pained and goodly faith to living and in filial prostration I begin. I meet your eyes in fair thanksgiving, and join my kindred earth as closest kin. Thank you.
1: On behalf of all the participants of this evening program, I hope that some light has been shed on the dark and lonely path of Ukrainian literature. We thank you for your presence and for your attention, and we bid you good night. Добра і дуже дякую за вашу ласкаву присутність. Добра ніч. Отож, дуже просимо, там за сценою є м- мусоржен. Тобто, можна чогось приємного напитися і закусити.